Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I loved barbecue. I always have. I'm from the South, from Atlanta, Georgia, and I knew Austin was the center of barbecue. But one of the great pleasures I discovered was a place called Micklewait Craft Meat on Rosewood Avenue, really close to my house. And I just find it joyous that I can go there almost every week and eat their amazing, amazing meats that they make, which is not just um, your typical thing. I recently had pulled um, lamb barbecue, which was an interesting surprise. So I love that place. I'm Carter Foster, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. Dating, friendship, and business networking app Bumble, which is based in Austin, has become a huge force in connecting people. We've got the company's head of brand, Alex Williamson, here in time for Valentine's Day to tell us what the data says about how to make successful online connections. Ellsworth Kelly was a noted artist who died in 2015, but the Blanton Museum of Art is about to unveil a freestanding building he designed three decades ago. We chatted with Carter E. Foster, Deputy Director for Curatorial Affairs at the Blanton, to find out why this piece will soon be a destination for art lovers from around the world. Peacocks aren't the only animals that strut their stuff. Michael J. Ryan, a biology professor and author of A Taste for the Beautiful, reveals what the animal world can teach us humans about attraction and excitement. In this week's web report, Eric Webb tells you all you need to know about avocados and why they're so closely associated with millennials. And we'll conclude with a toast, a set of recommendations of things we feel you should be checking out right now. Let's start with Alex, who was part of the founding team at Bumble when it launched in 2014. Hi, Alex. Welcome to I Love You So Much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So we are fascinated by the habits people have on Bumble, and that's why we wanted to have you in here today, because there's been some relevatory data that you guys have gathered about people's swiping habits. So I thought we would start out with when people are the most picky and when they are not the most picky. So what have you found with people's usage of Bumble? Are there like days of the weeks when they tend to be more selective? Absolutely. So I think that people are less selective on weekends um, because if you, I mean, if you really think about it realistically, you're looking for something to do. You're looking for places to go. Um, you're looking for ways to get out of the house and not stay home and watch Netflix and eat pizza, which is my typical uh, weekend. <laughs> but on Friday and Saturdays, people are least picky. And then what's interesting is that Mondays, people 
are more picky than they would be on a Friday or Saturday. And people spend a lot of time on Bumble on Sunday, which I think is really interesting. You get to the end of the week and it's like you want that, it sounds so cheesy, but you want that Sunday kind of love with somebody that you can Mm -hmm. hang out with and, you know, clean up the house and run errands with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the perfect day to look. And also that you're trying to look, set up something to look forward to in the week. Exactly. Your Monday, Sunday, Monday, thinking about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, get us through the drudgery of the work week. <laughs> At least that's how I used Bumble. I don't think anybody can turn down a Wednesday happy hour, right? That's no. like the greatest pick-me-up no. to a week. <laughs> so, okay, so what's also interesting here, too, is like, I, ha- I actually haven't used a dating app before, but I assumed it was like one great photo, like just one great profile picture, and you are set. That's actually not the case. Yeah, it's six, actually. We have six spots for you to put in a photo, and what... I recommend and what what our we recommend through research is is putting in an assortment of photos of yourself. So your first photo should always be a, the most clear photo of you, not pixelated, uh-huh. not when you had a different hair color. Like I was a redhead for a while. You want it to be a current Me photo. Me too. Yes, you yeah. want it to be a current photo of you, blonde, right. um, smiling, approachable. If that's your vibe, you want it to be whatever. Who is going to be showing up to meet for that date? Mm-hmm. That's who you want in your first profile photo and then you want to follow it up like really storytelling right a picture is worth a thousand words so you want it to be photos of you uh if you like to go out and go to live shows and you want to you want to showcase that um if you're very social put a group shot in i would recommend that around four or five Mm -hmm. in the list of photos so you want people to be very aware of who you are um it's it's difficult and not lost among groups of friends exactly um and then just showcase your hobbies if you like to read books and drink coffee show that if you like to go out and drink mimosas show that just really show off who you are because that's going to help you attract the right person for you do you need to be in every single picture or can you get away with like one picture being like a on dating, I would recommend being in every single okay. photo. And, but it can be sure. you, you know, looking like on a mountaintop or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Um, and how old, how many years can you go back on pictures? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends. <laughs> like if you went to, I mean, I will just say it from the male, from the female perspective. I, I can't tell you how many men I saw at Machu Picchu, for instance. And I'm like, so when did when did you go to Peru? Like, and they would say five years ago, <laughs> yeah, or I studied abroad there. Machu Picchu like is the ultimate. No, there are two. It's Machu Picchu and a picture. <laughs> many articles have been written about this, but men with a fish and what that there's, represents. Oh, there's yeah. actually an Instagram oh. handle, Bumble Guys and Fish. I don't know if it's still active, yeah. but like fishing or with no, their, no, they're like, holding a fish. Beta fish. No, I started okay. taking screen fishing. grabs. <laughs> yeah, I started fishing. taking screen okay. grabs of every Machu Picchu picture and every <laughs> fish picture. I would love to see those. It's for research for us. Totally. So I mean, so these are. I mean, obviously, we're kind of talking about it from like a female perspective, like what you would. Well, I guess it's a for a male perspective, too. You would have all the same recommendations for having a clear picture of your face and the Absolutely. things you're interested in. And, and You know what I think is really interesting? A lot of people try to put in the most stylized photo of themselves. So mm. if you're a model, you know, you'd want to put in modeling shots or that time that you model jewelry for your friend, you know, or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Or I always tell men. It seems like a lot of motorcycle pics are on mm-hmm. Bumble and, and or, you know, that's just like a typical photo that you see. But I wouldn't put anything as your first photo that could come across as intimidating. Mm-hmm. Right. You want to seem approachable. And mm-hmm. if your first photo is you very unless this is just who you are, it, you know, if it's very tough on a motorcycle and, you know, you're you're looking serious, then it makes it harder for somebody to picture sitting down and having a conversation with mm-hmm. you. Right. You can show that off in like your fourth or fifth photo. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then you reveal to 
to them, I am actually a motorcycle model. Mm-hmm. This yes, is what I do exactly. for a living. <laughs> <laughs> and you can have it in there, but I just, for your first photo, I would always keep it extremely, like as real as you can be. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. I have a question actually for both of you. Okay, so as a copywriter, is there text that can accompany the photos? Sue, can you write captions? Like on the photos or in the bio? I, either one. I think just in the bio you just can. In the but bio. I was gonna, okay. that was my next question to you is what tips do you have on making your bio better? Oh man, the bio is the most huge. I, I always think it's underrated. It's yeah. it's the best spot. I, that's my favorite thing. To, like when, when you look through, you know, people's profiles is what they put in. And, and one of my favorite bios that I actually saw was um, a guy put in his list of things was I like to watch dogs back up and I'd never thought about it but if you think about like if you think about the way that dogs walk I mean it, it, things that are like quirky um, show off your personality showcase like if you if you if you think that things are funny that people typically wouldn't like offbeat uh, personality traits I think are so helpful in a bio I think you can put in your hobbies what I always recommend is do not put in what you don't one so like if you're if you say something like Mm -hmm. i'm not looking for this or i'm you know i only want to see somebody who's you know into serious relationships because you're limiting yourself and then right Right. out the gate you're saying you know you're showcasing things about yourself that that come across as picky like don't a little judgy and a little judgy like just Mm -hmm. be yourself and and show and let that shine i think it's a great place to start a conversation like for men if you want to ask a question i think a woman is more enticed to answer that question in the first move that's a really great hack uh bumble hack that is so wait, true wait, hold Beca- on. explain yeah. this hack to me because actually I, I, I really enjoyed bumble and actually had a lot of great dating experiences but i, I didn't that. find it you know the idea that the women have to start the conversations is very empowering when you're first starting but I, I was only on it for a couple of weeks but what i found was that i was actually getting a ton of matches but crickets when i would respond to people and when i a couple of people i was dating i ended up going out on dates with they say oh yeah you didn't know this guys can just swipe on every single girl and then when the picky, you know, when I actually spend a lot of time like trying to figure out who I'm going to swipe on and then I get a match to me, it's a real like, oh, somebody actually also spent that much time on me. But I, I wasn't getting the impression for that. So that how do you guys into a numbers game. and then it turns into a numbers? I game. think that's something that's almost like human. Like, how do you change human traits? Right. Like, mm-hmm. a, and I think that that's an easy thing for people to do when they're on an online dating app. But I think that, you know, how we really go about that is is. I think your first move should, I mean, it's great if your first move is high. If, if, if your first move is just a waving hand emoji, awesome. Like, you did it. And if that's not something that's normal for you as a, as a woman, more power to you. You know, I mean, that is just like leaps and bounds ahead of where we were yeah. five years ago in society and dating. Um, but I, I do think that a lot of, like, we maybe when you were on it, I know that we added in men have to res- respond within 24 hours the match expires. Um, so now there really is a true prompt to start the conversation. So, sit on it, yeah. so you're controlling for like men having the but well, and, and you guys power. don't limit the number of swipes, do you? Do we? Why? You don't limit the number of swipes for men or women. We don't. Yeah. And what were you saying about the question? So like, you recommend so, for like maybe women to leave a question in their bio for men to answer, or vice versa. Vice versa. So okay. men can't make a first move on Bumble, right? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a hack that I think that men can do is ask a question that mm-hmm. is that would lead to conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the flip side, what I think is so great about about Bumble for women is that there's it's twofold, right? Like you get to make the first move. So you get to essentially control the conversation and steer the way that it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really does put the power in your hands. And and I think that by starting the conversation, it almost empowers you to keep the conversation going in the direction that you want it to. Um, so it never steers in a way that makes you feel 
uncomfortable. But I also think what's so great about about it is that you can ask all of the first date questions mm-hmm. on Bumble. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to go on a first date and ask like, you know, like what, you know, how was the weather today for you? Or like, where'd you go to school? Or like whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like what, where'd you grow up? Like you can get those questions out of the way. So by the time that you end up on a date, you're actually on your second date, really. Mm-hmm. That's what's yeah. so great about online dating today is that all those breadcrumbs, it just makes it a lot mm-hmm. easier to sort of get a sense as to whether or not somebody's dateable, something right. you, you might be interested in. I mean, I often say I could look at somebody's Instagram account and tell you if they're dateable <laughs> or not. Well, do you know, it's, we just um, included Instagram integration. Oh, it does cool. not attach your handle. So nobody, it's not one mm-hmm. of those things that people swipe through Bumble and then could go find you on Instagram. We mm-hmm. wanted to keep it very safe. It's just the photos. Um, so you can actually see more photos of people. Very good. So, okay, I want to just uh, come to the next data point, but before that, say that asking a question to someone you're interested in is a is great advice for life. Like, <laughs> like, like men and women, Ask straight and gay, and, like everybody. Like, I cannot tell you like how what a turnoff it is when like a man comes up to me and just starts like announcing what he does for a living or. You know, um, or just is like starts like kind of giving me his resume. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Like, why it's like, are you talking? Because I think it's been ingrained to men to like come and show off and to peacock, like, come and yeah. yeah, yeah, do like your thing. Whereas, like, there's nothing sexier than someone coming up to you and asking you a question and showing interest. It's like the whole the whole life lesson of being interested, not interesting. You know, like yeah. be interested in other people, and that makes and you it, interesting. It does, right? I fully believe that. So, okay, so this was. This is interesting to me. The most mutually attractive profession for all genders. <laughs> Alex, tell us what it is and then explain this, please. It's medical sales. <laughs> <laughs> what? I think it's a, you know hot. Ooh, you know I know. <laughs> financial no, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to open the door and bring a fan Two in. Words. That's exactly <laughs> it. It's the financial stability and also I think that people who are in sales have a natural knack for conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's very true. All right, all right. I see where you're going. Okay. So um okay, so let's let's I wanna ask something else while we're kind of giving people tips for how to um um enhance their bumble experience. So the best time of day to send a message a tell us what that is and b can you define best for us like how how it works like how it works people really respond yeah do people really respond is it like result in a date so okay so first tell us like what that magic window is the best time of day to send a message is between 8 and 10 p.m and what's nice about that is that you're i have a hard time getting back to like texting my mom back during the work day right Mm -hmm. you're busy things are going on by that point you've wrapped up your day you've gone through you know, you've gone through work, you've gotten home, you've gotten comfortable, you're relaxed. It's the best time to unwind and bumble, to get mm-hmm. on there and, and meet somebody new. And it's nice that you can meet people without having to go out every night for cocktails. You can actually, or, you know, stay sober, meet somebody at Whole Foods. <laughs> you can you can do your laundry and meet somebody at the same time. Got it. So, okay, so we're defining best as elicits a response, like uh, engagement happens. Yeah, it's, that's just the most active time on the platform. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Um, so, Alex, I think I want to um, wrap up here. It's a dream of mine, actually, as a copywriter to ghostwrite people's bios oh, yes. on Bumble or really any dating app or online service. Listeners, if you require this service, please reach out to me, Tolly Mosley. You can find me across social media. But... Let's talk about the actual content of the messages and which ones are the most sticky. So say you've got those six pictures. You've got a rockin' bio. 
now sending a message. What is the kind of message that's most likely to elicit a response? Actually, it's a GIF. A GIF is the most interesting. It elicits a response, and typically people get into conversations through GIFs back and forth. Um, But I also think it's playing off of photos. It's playing off of the bio. If there's like a question in the bio, you answer it and, and your response. Or if you see something interesting in somebody's photo, ask about it. Instead of just, hey, how are you? Like show somebody that you're actually interested, that you paid attention to them, that they matter in a way to you versus it just being like, like hey, what's up? Or hey, how was your day? It doesn't really show anything. You could you could say that to anybody, but if you personalize it, you're a lot more likely to get a response. Is that a good opportunity to also start pointing out, you know, it's like, oh, I resonate. I, I like I, I went there too, or I, I also do that kind of thing, or you know, start looking for those connections. Absolutely. That's what dating ultimately is about, right? It's yes. like finding things where you align. And and finding dogs that you want to meet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Alex, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Listeners, if you've got some success stories about dating apps, if you've got some tips about dating apps, please do send them to us. We would love to share them on the show. Please do. And I'm actually ordained. So if you are a success story, I can come and marry you. Oh, my God. I've married a couple in Vancouver. (laughs) I got ordained for that in November. Wow. So so soup to nuts. You can really just (laughs) intro them, send them down the aisle. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Austin isn't just the name of a new piece of art soon to be on display at the Blanton. It's the title of a standalone building with paintings and sculptures inside from Ellsworth Kelly, an artist whose architectural plans for this piece sat in his studio for nearly 30 years. Thanks so much for coming in, Carter. It's great to have you. Happy to be here. Okay, so Ellsworth Kelly lived and worked in rural New York, and he died a couple of years ago. What are his connections to Texas, and how did this building get into the Blanton's? Well, he actually had a lot of Texas connections because he was a very prominent artist, and Texas is full of great museums and great collectors. Mm-hmm. Um, many from collected his work. The Blanton has had a painting has a painting from 1960. Um, Dallas Museum has major work by him. There's the the Dallas panels at Meyerson Hall in the, um, in Dallas. This that I am pay the architect commission for that mm-hmm. space that he mm-hmm. did. Um, so, you know, there, Fort Worth, Texas, Fort Worth yeah. has a major, the Museum of Modern Art in Fort Worth has a major um, work by him. So yeah. those are those are connections to Texas. Um, to Austin, he didn't have a huge connection and certainly not to UT. But the idea for this building that we ended up building, um, that he designed, uh, came to one of our trustees, a woman named, a wonderful woman named Jeannie Klein. And she took it to our director. Um, it was brought to her by a Houston gallerist named Hiram Butler who knew about the project. People that knew Ellsworth um, knew about the project because it was lying around his studio for years. And this originated 30 years ago, It right? originated in the in the mid-1980s with wow. a collector in California named Douglas Kramer, who's a very prominent TV producer. He produced Love Boat, Dynasty, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And he had a vineyard, and he um, wanted a building on his vineyard, he described it as a chapel. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a chapel now, but when Douglas Kramer um, thought about it, he he wanted to have a chapel like an English country house might have a chapel on their mm-hmm. grounds. And Ellsworth Kelly loved um, the history of art. He loved um, you know medieval Romanesque um, art and architecture, which he knew quite well from his spending time in Europe, and um, that's what inspired him. Mm-hmm. And so he designed this building in the mid-1980s, and he brought it to a pretty high degree of 
design completion. It was never built for for a number of reasons, but um, but he did. It was quite far along as a design concept to the point where they even had architects draw up plans and and turn his drawings into blueprints. Well, because he had made sculptures, but he had never actually done a building. He'd made many sculpture, yeah. um, but he'd never done a building. Wow. Um, okay, yeah. so now it, it's been under construction for. Uh, just over a year. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's going to uh, officially open to the public on February 18th. That's correct, yes. And tell us, what can we expect? Um, you can expect a, a, a place of calm, beauty, and light. It's really a, a total work of art. It's a it's a building. It's a work of architecture, but it's it's architecture that's installed with, with artwork that Ellsworth Kelly designed for the space mm-hmm. specifically. And he's an artist who long had a relationship with architecture, even though he's best known as a painter and sculptor, and his, he's best known really probably for his abstract paintings which hang on the wall but he always thought about his works as objects that exist in space not as pictures that you look into they're they're things that exist in the world and in that Mm -hmm. sense they always had a relationship to the space around them Mm -hmm. and so this is the first time he really got to exercise the totality of the space um, and the forms in it, they're all his. So it's like walking into his mind. Wow. And, so and, uh, and we were talking a little bit off mic. You know, I think many Austinites might have been to the Rothko Chapel in Houston, mm-hmm. but that's a little different because Rothko did not design that space. That's correct. It was designed by the architect Philip Johnson. And um, and so the the paintings that he, he painted in his studio sort of independently of the building are in the building, mm-hmm. but they, they you don't have this marriage of, of of architecture and art the way you will in the this Kelly building, mm-hmm. uh, which is called Austin. Mm-hmm. So Kelly is known for using you know very bright colors. Very, I mean, some people might put them in an abstract or a modern box or Absolutely. contemporary. Which all is of those correct, things. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes you know that kind of art can be challenging for maybe casual art fans or people who don't consider themselves art fans. What kind of meaning or or questions do you think Kelly was hoping people would would come away with? After visiting this building, well, one thing that I can I can say about his work um, that might help people who, and I understand why people can have mm-hmm. problems with it. Sometimes it looks deceptively simple. Um, this kind of thing, my, you know, my five year old could do that. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, well, we'll have him do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he, um, his art, unlike some abstract painters like Jackson Pollock or Mark Rothko, where the form is coming from their heads and they're creating it on the canvas, Ellsworth Kelly was a deep observer of the real world, the natural world, n- both nature and the, the built environment. And he would love to find details in the real world that he could use and turn into art. So he might caps, cap, capture a glimpse of a shadow on a wall, or he might see the crook of someone's neck and a scarf on it, and he just and just take this one little detail out of the world and, and distill it and use different colors, and and but use those shapes and create a kind of large object out of that that, that is abstract when you look at it, but it really mm-hmm. comes from this deep observation. And I think that it, that gives his art a kind of very human quality that anyone can appreciate. Mm-hmm. And once you, if you study his work in detail, you can understand some of the sources. He actually he didn't base his work on photographs, but he did take photographs. And those photographs sort of show how he looked at the world, mm. that he'll he'll see a shape of a roof or something. And he does turn them into what you might describe as simple geometric shapes, but he was so attuned to every aspect of the shape, the exact angle of how two lines meet, the exact mm-hmm. radius of a curve, um, the this sp- very specific color he was using with that shape. He mixed every color mm-hmm. independently for each painting, so he, he rarely repeated himself. And wow. I think people maybe look at his work and think it looks repetitive because you'll see like a, a shaped canvas with a, you know, red and yellow or whatever. Mm-hmm. And But it's really a specific yellow and a specific red. Wow, and and so I think piece. that... Um, and, and But I think in terms of meaning, I, you know, it really was for him about joy and beauty and... and you know, bringing that to other people because that's how he saw the world, and he he created these things because he was himself was motivated by beauty and seeing beautiful things in the world. Yeah. Um, so Austin is home to many amazing sculptures and immersive spaces, like you're talking about. I mean, 
the bicycles installation downtown, Sky Space yeah. at UT. Yes. Uh-huh. What are some of your favorite places to kind of have this artistic moment? Well, this obviously moment. the Blanton the Museum. Blanton, obviously the Blanton Museum of Art. But you know, I, what's interesting is that it's been fun for me. Um, I, I lived in New York for 11 years, um, and I worked at the Whitney Museum, which only collects 20th and 21st century American art, mm-hmm. so it has a somewhat limited scope. It's been fun to come to a place like the Blanton and make different discoveries. The second week mm-hmm. I was on the job, we were looking at a, a 17th century Spanish sculpture in the collection, and we realized it was by this very important female artist from that time that's kind of a lost masterpiece by her. So things like that are mm-hmm. super exciting. When well, I just yeah. love walking into the main space of the Blanton and with the, well, that's the walls, great to hear. and it's just so calming. Yeah. And um, Remind listeners, uh, it's free every Thursday. It's free every Thursday. Okay. That's and, right. And how, how will pricing work for the new Kelly? Uh, with the, with uh, the Kelly building, you uh, it's free with museum admission. So you do have to, if you're a museum member, it's free. If okay. you're a UT um student or faculty member, you get in free. You just have to get a ticket at the ticket entrance. So you just have to check in and pay either the museum admission or use your um, ID to get in for free. And I'm sure you've got tons of special opening weekend events. Yeah, we're having a big sort of fundraising gala, which is kind of, you know, it's it's something we're using to to, um, get donations. And we've actually raised quite a bit of money for that. That's one event. And then the next weekend, we're having um, sort of an art world party for our coll- our museum colleagues and, and other people and whatever the art world means. <laughs> and then we're having a public opening on the 18th where the mayor of, of Austin, our director, Simone Witcha, the president of UT, Greg Fenves, are, and a, a bunch of other people are going to be there. The UT band's going to be there. going to have like a, a ribbon-cutting, groundbreaking. It's not groundbreaking because it's built, but a ceremony. Um, and then that's the day it's free to the public. And actually on that day, I'm giving a lecture at 2 o'clock on the 18th. Oh, so that'd be so great. Um, yeah. And I also saw the you guys gave a great Ellsworth Kelly presentation a couple of years ago. Go that you can find on YouTube. Right. We'll link to that in the show right. notes. Oh, great. Yeah. Good. So thanks so much for coming in. Sure. Carter. We really appreciate it. Thank you. UT's Michael Ryan has spent years studying frogs and which males have successfully figured out how to excite the brains of their female counterparts. Now he turns his attention to other parts of the animal world, including to humans, to decode sexual excitement. So Professor Ryan, or Mike, as he preferred to be called, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for talking to us about your new book, A Taste for the Beautiful. Uh, Tell us what it's about. Well, first of all, thank you for the interview and for your interest. So I've been studying why animals evolve traits that are beautiful to us, are beautiful to humans, but more importantly, are beautiful to members of the opposite sex of their own species. And in many animals, males evolve these fancy, magnificent traits to attract the attention of females. And these traits usually don't make the male survive better. In fact, usually it decreases their survivorship, but it makes them them more beautiful to females, so females are more likely to mate with them. So if if we want to understand why females prefer these beautiful traits, we need to understand how the female's brain perceives beauty. Right. And what I love about this book is that you've uh, gone more than gone through more than just the old story of, oh, well, these traits, um, you know, help survive or these traits help carry on the gene the gene line. 
Um, it's more about excitement, what the brain of the beholder finds exciting. So an example of this that has a parallel in the human world is something called mate choice coffee. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so in the movie Legally Blonde, there's a scene where there's a guy on the sidewalk talking to two women, asking one of the women if she received this phone call. And she says, yes, and I wish you'd stop calling me. I would never go out with you. You're a loser. Girls like us don't go out with jerks like you. And Reese Witherspoon is walking by. She hears it. She goes over and she slaps the guy in the face and says, you never called after last night. You gave me the greatest night of pleasure I've ever known. And it's too late. I spent too many hours crying over you. And she stomps off. And then the girl who's just berating the guy now says, oh, so when do you want to go out? So what we see in humans, well, that's just one example of something we're very familiar with. And that is how our perceptions of beauty are really influenced by peer pressure. And the same thing happens with fishes. We did an experiment where we gave a female fish, they're called mollies, they're local fishes here in Texas. We gave her a choice between two males. One was a bit larger than the other male. And the females spend more time associating with the male who's larger. We then put the female back in the middle of the tank in a glass cylinder. And now she can watch the less preferred male courting a female, but, but not the other male. So then we, pref- we remove the female, that's with the less preferred male, and we test the female's preference again, and now she changes her preference. Now she wants to be courted by the male that she didn't prefer before, but she's just recently seen being courted by a female. So fascinating, the power of social influences on our uh, mating habits. Um, uh, Something else that I thought was fascinating was um, you're talking about a species of guppy that has orange streaks on its body and females increasingly go for the uh, the the guppies with more orange on them um, but it's not immediate it wasn't immediately clear about why orange was so attractive until a biologist in the field identified an, another orange Um, presence in their life that did make them exciting and that might also hold parallels for the human world. Yeah, so we often say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. One of the points of the book is that more generally beauty is in the brain of the beholder, but then I remind the readers that the brain has other things on its mind besides sex. So what these researchers found is that the guppies feed on orange fruit And then they measured how interested the male and female guppies are in just the color orange, per se. They put poker chips in an aquarium with the fish, and they found that both the males and the females spent a lot of time inspecting the orange colors rather than the other colored chips. So the researchers interpreted this as the guppies evolving a bias towards the color orange, for foraging reasons, so they'll be attracted to these fruits that are so good for them, and that the males then evolve traits that exploited these sensory biases in the females. That is, they evolved orange since the females were always cute, were already cued into orange. That's that, and that just shows the power of our environment in affecting our choices. And um, the uh, something that you also point out in your lectures and elsewhere is the fact that. You know, um, 
this nature-nurture argument, it's not really a relevant point to biologists because biologists are always aware that environment is always affecting our choices, that this idea that we're just born hardwired for preferences or that we're born thinking certain people are beautiful may not even really be relevant, that our uh, uh, our social environments and our physical environment environment is always creating those cues for us. Yeah, so this this nature versus nurture controversy is not really a controversy in biology anymore because like you said, we know that the environment affects our genes and the genes can affect our environment. So what biologists are more interested in it's what we call a gene by environment interaction. How do these two things interact with one another? And one one way that we know that these sexual preferences, these preferences for beautiful traits in humans are certainly not hardwired is because these preferences can be very fickle. And one example of this is based on a country western song that Mickey Gilley had called Don't the Girls Get Prettier at Closing Time? And he sings about a guy who goes to a bar, he has very high standards, he would only leave the bar with a woman that he would rate as a 10. And then by the end of the night, none of the women that meet his expectations are around. So what he does is he just deceives himself at thinking that these women who earlier in the evening he wouldn't go home with, now he would go home with because all of a sudden he thinks they're very attractive. So people actually studied this in a bar in Virginia, and they asked men and women to rank the sexual attractiveness of members of the other gender early in the evening and then late at night, right before closing time. And then what they found is that the attractiveness of members of the opposite gender increased right before closing time. So everybody was convincing themselves that everybody looks really attractive because the bar is about to close. Now you might think that's just because they were drinking a lot, that they might have had what we call beer goggles. Everybody looks great after a few drinks. So somebody else repeated this study in Australia where beer is king, where people like to drink a lot, and they actually measured blood alcohol levels. So when you do this statistical test to remove the effect of alcohol, you still get this closing time effect. So we wanted to know if the male frogs also get prettier at closing time. So we collected female frogs early in the evening and gave them a call that we know is usually unattractive. And the females showed no interest in the call. Now, the female frogs only go to the pond on the night they're going to mate. If they don't get a male, they have to release all of their eggs into the water and they're unfertilized. So they've wasted all of this reproductive investment and these frogs that we study would take them another six weeks to yoke up enough eggs to mate again. So now we test the same females who found these calls unattractive earlier in the evening. We test them late at night, getting close to their quote-unquote closing time when they would have to get a mate or just drop all their eggs. And now this call that was very unattractive earlier in the evening is now very attractive and the females are more than willing to mate with the male that's making that call. So the, in humans, Mickey Gilly would say the girls get prettier at closing time, and with the frogs that we're studying, we're also showing that the males sound prettier at closing time. So interesting. Last question, uh, Mike. What do you think that 
people can get out of this book, reading A Taste for the Beautiful? Do you think it's just a deeper understanding that attraction is about more than survival? It's about more than, you know, it's, it's really this deeper question of excitement and like the mystery of excitement. What do you think people can get out of this book? Well, I think there's, I think there's two things. One has to do with our concern for biodiversity. And when we think about biodiversity, we often think about just the number of species. But what most of us find so attractive about biodiversity is that it is so attractive. We're surrounded by so much beauty in nature, flashing fireflies, brightly colored fishes, fancy songs and birds. And this book gives us some idea of where this particular flavor of biodiversity comes from. It tells us pretty much why we're surrounded by so much beauty in nature. And I think it also has a lesson for us. What we see is that there's no single standard of beauty and that our perceptions of beauty are shaped by our local environments. They're shaped by the individuals that we associate with and they change during the night and they even change with age. So I think it should give us much more of an appreciation for the different kinds of physical attributes that we see in people and get away from this idea that there is one single standard of beauty that we all share, or at least we all share in, let's say, Western culture. And instead, it informs us about how we all have very diverse opinions of what is sexually beautiful. So that we sh it really tells us that we should be embracing all this physical diversity that we see and not think that there's one single icon of beauty for our culture. Wonderful. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Mike. And thanks for appearing on I Love You So Much. Thank you very much. We've got Eric Webb with us for a web report. Eric, what do you have for us this week? What's what's the topic? I have a little thing called an alligator pair. If alligator an pair. Alligator an pair. An alligator pair of what? Have you heard of such a thing? Okay, Omar, cool it. <laughs> no, an alligator pair is a nickname for something we all know and love, the avocado. Oh, here we go. Okay. okay so I was doing a little research into the jade juggernaut of the produce section, the avocado, which we all know and love. It's on our breakfast tacos. It's in our margaritas. Can I tell you something? Please go. Not a fan. Of the avocado margarita? Do not, do not. Oh. Of avocados in general. I don't like avocados. I don't like guacamole. Wow. Yes, I know. My bad, jaw has just dropped. I'm a bad Latino. I know. <laughs> wow. Well, Addy and I, as, as millennials, <laughs> yeah, we, we have become associated with the avocado. So let's, let's start with that. How did that happen? Because I'm, I'm Gen X. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with avocados. They were always around. I was in South Texas. But I, my generation has never given them th that much thought. Sure. You just took them for granted. Well, uh, Eric uncovered something interesting in this research. Tell us what happened in 1990. Yeah. Sure. Well, okay. So with avocados, the reason we're talking about avocados is because they have kind of become synonymous with millennials. And so I did a little research, dug into like all the weird avocado facts that you could possibly <laughs> want to know or hope to know. And they've been around for a minute, obviously. Let's not kid ourselves. It's not like avocados were invented the second someone put them on toast. <laughs> That's not the case. Uh, but one reason why they might have become so prevalent in our culture these days is because of NAFTA, actually. So uh, for a very, very long time, uh, Mexican avocados were banned by the U.S. government in the, starting in the early 20th century because California growers were worried that fruit flies would come along with them with the whole custom deal. Or competition. 
or competition. <laughs> I imagine there's a fair amount of lobbying going on. Uh, but U.S. growers couldn't meet rising demand eventually. And so uh, with NAFTA, that opened the doors for Mexican avocados to cross over the border. Wait, let me see if I understand this. California growers were concerned that Mexican avocados were going to come over the border and take the jobs that should be filled by American avocados. This is a timely segment, Omar. Mm-hmm. Here we go. It's mm-hmm. also the Super Bowl, which is the highest uh, avocado consumption day of the year. So there you go. See exactly. Uh, so that kind of that's one little slice of, slice of the avocado <laughs> timeline. Watch your, <laughs> watch, your, watch your hand. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, avocado hand, as we know, is a very real deal. It's a very very. Real they have deal. developed pit free avocados to help with that. I am so skeptical of that. I am too. Mm. But you know, you eat grapes that don't have any seeds and don't think twice about it. So Yeah, but the grape seeds so much more easily ignored than this a giant true. wooden pellet. Yeah. But you uncovered something really interesting about the avocado pit that you included in your story. Yeah. So uh, the thing that and this is actually what got this whole research uh, kick started was we found this article from uh, the Rio Grande Valley saying that scientists are looking at the husk of the avocado pit as a possible uh chemical that could be used to fight cancer. Oh. Which I think everyone would be down for. Yeah, right? absolutely. Everyone loves that. Use every part of the avocado if you can. Mm-hmm. But here's the kicker. Uh, the husk also contains cancerous compounds. So... It could either cause cancer or cure it. <laughs> so you're going to save you or kill you. Going to take your chances with that avocado on your face. I mean, that's like face. how a vaccine works, really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, no one's seeing the husk of the avocado uh, seed Hopefully. I hope you're not. You shouldn't be. Um, but back to the alligator pair. So let's travel back in our al- our avocado time machine. So, you know, where did the word av- avocado come from to begin with? There is some murkiness as to that uh, as to that answer. But obviously, avocados were in Mexico and Central America for much a very, very long time. And uh, there's a Nahuatl word. Hope I'm saying that right. And Adi, I think you, you said the the word for avocado probably much better than I could. It's well, aguacate is the word for Spanish now Spanish. nowadays, but now it's aguacatul, mm-hmm. which is the ancient word for for devil's fruit. Well, some say is the word for testicle. Oh, yes, it is the de- that is the devil's fruit. <laughs> so yes. this was a common factoid in my high school Spanish class. I don't know if you also got did, this information no, in your this. high school Spanish class, and because people thought it was very interesting that the root word for avocado. Yeah originated from a body part then. Well, so linguistic anthropologists have looked into this and the evidence shows, at least in some scholarly research, that it's not so much that that is the same word for testicle, it's that people called it that because of a resemblance. It wasn't like they were literally the same word. Sure. It's more of a colloquial thing. Uh, Not a resemblance. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So, uh, you know, the Spanish uh, aguacate became avogato. In the in early uh, English version, and there's a few etymological steps here and there, and here and there, and later, and then we get avocado. But an early English name was alligator pear, according to dictionary.com. Now, the, now the Spanish word now when you pronounce it in Spanish, it also sounds like abogado, mm-hmm. which is lawyer, lawyer in Spanish, which makes mm-hmm. for some very humorous courtroom mix-ups sometimes <laughs> uh, when you call an avocado to the stand. Uh, now, uh, let me ask you this: Did some of the impetus for writing this also come from that there was like a 40,000 avocado spill on on the highway at some point recently. It didn't. It was solely because of the cancer research. But now I wish I'd known about the avocado spill. I didn't know about that. There was a big avocado spill. Like I remember fo- that. Like 40,000 yeah. avocados. Yeah, was true. it in Dallas or somewhere? The, you, I can't believe you didn't hear the weeping, Eric. Oh, we were yeah. all, every millennial in Austin and except you were just gnashing of teeth. <laughs> and me, people who don't like avocados were like, yay, 40,000 less so avocados to deal with. So I have a very clear place where I do not like avocados. I do not like avocados fried or heated. 
I think that at that point, it just, the game changes. They don't taste anything like avocados. I think it is a, it is disrespectful to the fruit, if I may go so far to, as to say. I disagree with you entirely because the Torchies fried avocado taco is the only taco I get at Torchies. I'm sorry, Addy's hissing and booing me. But I'm glad you mentioned that it is disrespectful to the fruit and not the vegetable. This is the thing that I think most people know, but it bears reiterating. Avocados are fruit. They are not vegetables. And technically, they're actually berries. The devil's berries. That's interesting. Fleshy pulp plus seed equals berry. Well, uh, here's another factoid. Vegetable is actually a term that's only used in the culinary world. It's not used in botany. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So what would you call veg- what we would call a vegetable? Is there a- it's a fruit. Every, every, every vegetable that you can think of is actually a fruit. Or it's a root, like a potato. I'm going to need and if you <laughs> And if you want to come back next week and challenge me to get you found one, I, that would be great. Because I actually really can't think of one. Uh, uh, there's <laughs> So, l- listeners, uh, we've just shown that veg- vegetables don't exist. Good luck convincing your kids to eat them. Uh, Eric, <laughs> thank you for being with us. Thank you for downloading all this information about avocados. Uh, you're welcome, millennials. I can't respond to you because, because my mouth is so agape of this <laughs> vegetable. Yeah, yeah, there's no vegetables. <laughs> I know. Well, thanks for having me. Have a great week, Eric. Thank you. Come to the moment in our show when we have a toast. This is where we go around the table giving some recommendations of things we feel you, our listeners, should check out. And we are joined by Alex Williamson, head of brand at Bumble. So, um, Addie, would you like to talk about what you're into right at this moment? So, uh, I am reading a new book that I started just a couple, just a week or so ago um, that I'm going to classify as Laura Ingalls Wilder fan fiction. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Already. <laughs> because I am kind of a wild, Laura Ingalls Wilder nut. I grew up in Southwest Missouri, not very far from where she ended up retiring and writing the Little House on the Prairie books. And I just was this little pioneer girl. I mean, I cannot describe it in any other way. I just loved the I freedom and like the. I er- can see it. I think she was an early feminist icon mm-hmm. for me. Awesome. And uh, I just, oh, I read those books probably a hundred times when I was a kid. Turns out that there are a bunch of other people just like me, including an author named Sarah Miller, who has written a book called Caroline. And it is the little house on the prairie book written through the eyes of Ma Ingalls. And it's and as a mother of two young children, she has, you know, Ma has Mary and Laura. They're packing up 3,000 pounds of their belongings into a freaking wagon. And they're crossing an ice frozen lake and then crossing the Mississippi and then getting to this unknown territory. And just writing about it from the perspective of a mom who's trying to take care of her own needs. She's also pregnant, by the way. And like as they're making this three month journey oh in a wagon. Oh, I cannot imagine. And so she's right, you know, and like trying to keep her kids, you know, calm and assured that the future's okay, even though she's not sure that the future's gonna be okay. It's just a whole new way to look at the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. And I this Laura Ingalls Wilder nerd is having a very good time. Is here for it. Is here yes. for it. <laughs> um so Caroline is the name of that book. Tali, awesome. what would you say? Okay, so I listened to this really great TED Radio Hour recently called Can We Trust the Numbers? And it's about algorithms and specifically how algorithms um, can or cannot encode social justice issues inside of them. So the first person they have on the show is um, uh, a former uh, data analyst, and it was her job to create algorithms for mortgage lending companies. And she was instructed to make your Google searches for mortgage opportunities more available to segments of the population that were, quote unquote, I'm using curly fingers, 
able to pay off their loans wow. than other people. But what she makes a point is, is like accuracy isn't the same as fairness. Mm. And so if a white male is searching on Google for mortgages and like immediately comes up with effortless opportunities to go find one, then he is part of a segment population historically has more able to pay them off. If a black male does the same search, he's going to have to jump through a lot of hoops to have that same access to opportunity. So the algorithm is presenting an accurate set of data, but it's not asking why those segments of the population found themselves in that position Hmm. of privilege or not. So there's this kind of um, activist movement going on with algorithm writers right now to shift from accuracy to fairness. Wow. So what was the name of it again? It's called Can We Trust the Numbers? It's one of the most recent episodes from TED Radio Hour. And it just got me thinking a lot about you know, reality. Like Mm -hmm. my Google search is different from someone's Google search Mm -hmm. over there, from someone's Google search over there. So that's a good one. Really interesting. Yeah. So I really recommend it. Check it out. Alex, what are you into these days? I've, well, actually, I've been really into uh, just the Time's Up movement in general and everything that's taking place right now in society. I think it is an incredible time to be a woman and a man and to be a person, Mm -hmm. I guess would be the best way to put that. Um, And I think that we are moving into an era um, that I hope and I foresee will be centered around kindness and treating each other with respect. Um, And I'm really fascinated with brands and companies that are actually and and people who are standing up and actually I'm um, trying to move the needle mm-hmm. right now. I think it is so important, and I think that um, in any way, shape, or form that we can create equality in the workplace and in dating. Um, it's it's just beyond important. That's really cool. I you know I'm just now uh, coming to appreciate the difference between hashtag Times Up and hashtag Me Too. You know, Me mm-hmm. Too might be harder for people to get on board who have not had exactly. an, an yep. experience or who don't identify as a woman or don't I you know like I said never have never been through that experience. But Times Up is something that everybody can get behind and mm-hmm. just say you know what we as a society are no longer going to tolerate this. So right, great recommendation. Right. Yeah, thanks. Snaps, snaps. Yes. <laughs> Should we do a lighthearted one? <laughs> Yay. You know what? I think that you or just you speak the truth. <laughs> You're speaking the truth, girl. We are here for all of it. Okay. I, I okay. do want to say that I also love the Bataya margaritas at Picnic. Amazing. <laughs> on a side, it bar. is not yeah. times up for that. It is game on. <laughs> okay, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listener, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your personalized candy hearts. Until next week, we'll see you standing in line to pay for a box of chocolates at Central Market. 